This podcast is brought to you by ReformationSites.com, church websites for a modern Reformation. Hear more at the conclusion of today's program. This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Is knowledge of the Eastern Roman Empire in the first century theology? No. But is it an appropriate introduction to the study of the New Testament? Absolutely. Hello, welcome to Theology on the Go. James, how are you today? I'm doing well, Jonathan. This is going to be an interesting episode. We sometimes have episodes where a lot of our episodes deal with a book, and then you and I sometimes have episodes that uh, just, it's the two pick of a us topic talking. And, yeah, pick yeah. a topic. And, and, and this feels like it's going to be one of those, except that we're adding a third. Uh, we're adding our friend, uh, a teacher at Cairn University, Robert LaRocca. Bob, thank you for joining us today for this discussion on the Christian and philosophy. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. And we should say, Bob, Bob teaches uh, Intro to Philosophy uh, at Cairn University yes. and has actually done that for several years now, um, as well as other special topics. E- ethics. I think your all-time favorite was aesthetics. No, I, I don't know. Okay. He nope. disagrees. No, but, but I, uh, I'm teaching apologetics there uh, every semester now and Intro to Philosophy. And in both of those courses, we talk about the discussion we'll be talking about today, the relationship between philosophy and theology. Well, I'll give a word of personal testimony as well. Bob has had a direct influence on my own uh, children. My older daughter, Caroline, took him for intro to philosophy at least and maybe something else. Was that it? But I mean, it it seems like it was more than that because she's always talking about it in in a very positive way. So anyway, couldn't be happier to have uh, Bob on. So Bob, let's just start start out with a really broad question. There's a famous phrase uh, what hath Athens to do with Jerusalem that deals with the question of philosophy's relationship to theology, philosophy's relationship to the church and to, to, to Christian doctrine. So, so let me put it to you that way. Should Christians be interested in philosophy? What, what, Bob, what hath Athens to do with Jerusalem? Well, with the question of like, should Christians be interested in philosophy? Another way of asking that question is, well, what is philosophy? Uh, we have to ask, you know, give, give some kind of def, uh, description. I knew you would take this a step yeah, well, back. I mean, that's a classic here, philosophy so, uh, move. You know, let's define our terms, gentlemen. Uh, <laughs> so you have to uh, just, if you just give a simple approach to what we're, what philosophers are doing is really they're just trying to explain. They're trying to explain what they know, what they consider incorrigible, what is unavoidable, what is so common, not for just their own life, but the lives of those around them. And so a question is, should, when you ask, should Christians do or think about philosophy, another way of asking is, should they try to explain their world? Should they, uh, their, the reality that they perceive around them, all that they take for granted? Um, should they undergo that quest? And if you put it like that, then the answer is in the affirmative. Of course, Christians should try to explain their world. Now, the question here when we talk about philosophy and theology is, will theology explain all that needs to be explained? Will all the questions that you can ask about your world, your common sense reality, your uh, everyday waking up, getting around life, your thought life, will all roads lead to theological answers? 
If they did, then yes, there wouldn't be much need for philosophy. If philosophy itself was reduced back to the uh, theological principles, then it wouldn't really still be philosophy. The question is, are there things to be explained in reality that are not fully explained by a theological method or a theological proposal or statement? If there is, then Christians should be very interested in philosophy. So then are you, I, I want to make sure I, I'm uh, understanding the way you're putting it. Is philosophy then just about the leftovers of theology? And I'm, not, I'm really no. not trying to say that in a provocative way. Is that what you're saying? It's about the things that theology doesn't tell us, teach us no, about? No, and, and oftentimes, uh, in fact, it could be the other way around. It could be that in some ways uh, what theology teaches us in many ways is uh, what we could never attain philosophically. Oftentimes, and even historically, that's in some ways the, uh, the narrative, is that while there were philosophers who were reaching veritable first principles that truly explain the world around them, is there something else besides explanation? Is there something else in our soul, in our quest, in who we are that won't be satisfied in just mere explanation? And so one way to, uh, we, we can begin to divide philosophy and theology is that philosophy is driven towards explanation. Is theology that? Is the purpose of theology to explain, to illuminate? Now, of course, theology does that, but is that the purpose? Um, typically, and I think classically, you would say that the purpose of our theology is to make us wise unto salvation. That's the purpose of scripture, is so, so that we would know our Lord, not explain him. We, we would know our world, but not it's the, that even scripture itself is not given to us for the sake of explaining our world and explaining uh, and giving reason for it, uh, reason, reason and explanation, along with so much theology. It's there, but is that the purpose? So give an example of something that maybe a philosopher, as a philosopher, explains about our world um, that a theologian may have interest in, but it's not his attempt so to explain. It's funny. It. it's funny working at a place like Cairn University. Uh, you know, I'd imagine if I was working at uh, another context, a secular context, I would also have difficulty almost justifying philosophy because so much, uh, so many uh, materialists and atheists would say that we can never get beyond ourselves, get beyond our perspectives. We're all just so located and situated. Um, and But Christians oftentimes come from a different angle of skepticism with, philosophy, with regards to philosophy is why do we even need it? What, what, uh, what, what do I need to explain that hasn't already been explained in scripture? And I get this in class a lot. And uh, my trick usually is, and what I usually ask is I ask the students, well, do you believe that God exists? And typically they say, yes, you know, it's a Christian university. And so I just ask, what do you mean by existence? What does that, what does it mean to exist? What, you know, for instance, you know, I'll point to the color of my shirt. I'm wearing a green shirt. Does God exist like green? Does God exist like the weather what what does it mean to be right and there's different philosophical explanations for being like so let's say you're a, a materialist like thomas hobbes well thomas hobbes was a materialist and wanted to be a theist so what did Hob thomas hobbes have to believe if he believed in yes, a material that god if all that exists insofar as it exists is material and god exists therefore God must be material. Do you see how your understanding of actuality will bleed into even a very simple confession of, well, God exists. 
you know, another question I'll ask a student, you know, I'll go further if I have time and ask them if they, if I, do they believe that the Bible is true? You know, our Lord says thy word is true, but what does it mean to be true? What, what are you saying when you say a statement is true? You know, so there's even shades of truth, right? And it becomes fairly complicated. Um, and in order to clarify and explain what you mean by the words that you say within your theology, that's typically a service that philosophy will provide. So, Bob, you and I have you and I have thought about this because we both sort of came of age together, I suppose, uh, theologically and philosophically, uh, and in so many other ways, I, su- I suppose. But one of the objections that we had was something like that we were subjugating scripture to a uh, to something to a to an understanding of being or of truth that we obtained independent of scripture, and that therefore that that indicated some kind of autonomy on our part. Um, and to that response, and, and maybe you could say something to, to even that tradition of preambles of the faith that you find, like, say, in the tradition of Thomas Aquinas, um, is, this, is this autonomy and is this exalting reason over revelation? So we came of age, uh, if, you, if you use it that way, you know, we were all, I think you were in your late 20s. I was in my early 20s when I got to Westminster. And that was oftentimes the, the hesitancy with regards to a more scholastic approach with, uh, to theology is that the scholastic uh, approach was consciously using philosophy as an introduction to theology, right? And that it almost seemed then right. that if, we're inter- if uh, philosophy is an introduction to theology, then it must be prior to theology, and therefore it must have priority to theology. You see how... And, and kind of yeah, a superiority and quickly uh, build upon these to the point where you become rationalists. And the way uh, this is maybe a little bit later on, but I was still at Westminster. And the way I, I tried to explain philosophy as a preamble is that if you go to a seminary or any kind of academic uh, curriculum where you study scripture, there's going to be an introduction to the Bible. Right. And the introduction to the Bible is not just naming the books and a grand narrative. Typically, there's three different subdisciplines within introduction. There's uh, historical backgrounds, text criticism and canonics. Right. If you take like an intro class. And the point is, is that in order for a proper and in-depth academic investigation of scripture, you should have this background knowledge. You should know what the Roman Empire was. You should know what Egypt is. You should know how the texts were transmitted. You should know how those are not necessarily biblical and theological propositions, but they are seen to be at least pedagogically necessary for a proper and academic study of sacred doctrine. And maybe the same thing with like filiology. And and philosophy is operating in a very similar way to Uh, even studying historical backgrounds. How much more enhanced would your investigation of the New Testament be if you knew something about the Eastern Roman Empire in the first century? Now, is knowledge of the Eastern Roman Empire in the first century theology? No. But is it an appropriate introduction to the study of the New Testament? Absolutely. Is it almost even necessary? Maybe not for the knowledge of Christ and for salvation, but is it necessary for a full and... um, and responsible read of the New Testament. 
I think most people concede that. And they may say the same thing about like languages. Um, it is, are you going to do New Testament exegesis? Uh, does Koine Greek enhance that uh, or debilitate that? And typically in that analogy, you know, we were at Westminster at the time. Um, we, uh, I had a professor in my old, my old Testament introduction class that actually did approach Old Testament introduction, not merely as a preamble, but as a prior authoritative criteria for what we believe about the Old Testament. So- so how is that different than what you are saying about philosophy, our understanding of truth or of being? Just as much as historical context or canonics or text criticism, while these things are not authoritative criteria for perhaps why you believe scripture is God's word, it doesn't authenticate or, or give uh, normative or these in, uh, the introduction to the, the introduction class to scripture wouldn't give normativity to scripture, wouldn't confer that. In the same way, we do not approach theology, sacred doctrine, or scripture standing on philosophical supposition. They're not uh, philosophical assumptions and doctrines do not become the criteria. They don't become an authoritative source. And what they merely are, are a way in which we can uh, especially uh, attach our statements about uh, our theological statements to a reality. Because that's the benefit of studying metaphysics, especially, is that when you study metaphysics, which is the section of philosophy that studies being, you have to be able to connect uh, how my words, my theological words, have a kind of uh, connection to the world that I wish to describe. Bob, I have, I have two questions about the, the analogy that you're drawing. Um, one is that unlike, let's say, Koine Greek, for, for the most part, the New Testament isn't teaching us Koine Greek. Uh, in other words, it's written in Koine Greek, but it's not, it's not teaching us about it. Whereas with philosophy, there are times, I would imagine, where you would actually appeal to the truths of Scripture in order to bolster or, or reinforce, perhaps even uh, initiate a, a philosophical uh, conviction mm-hmm. at, w- at which you'd arrive. And so that, that seems a little... Different to me. The, the other thing, though, and this is really what I want to get to in a question, is that while there are differences in terms of people's understanding of Koine Greek or Biblical Hebrew, for the most part, that that is a that's a body of knowledge that is, you know, uncontested. Yeah, it's on. It's r- relatively uncontested. I mean, around the margins, maybe, but it's relatively uncontested. Whereas when we look at the history of Christians and philosophy, there are a number of different philosophical schools that have been associated with Christian teachers in the past. So I guess I want to ask that then two questions from that. What are some of those main strands or traditions of philosophy that have often been embraced by, by Christian teachers? And then maybe you can make a case for, for what, what you think is most biblically faithful. So, uh, with first, with regards to the comparison of uh, philosophy to maybe New Testament or Old Testament introduction, it wouldn't just be languages. I would also, you know, add in the like the discipline of history. But there's many different historiographies, for instance. Yeah, there's there's a gr- obviously some of those things are there. There's a greater degree of uh, disagreement about some of the maybe the nature of Egyptian politics in a certain era. 
but it's still not at the level of no, the not, not fundamental the disagreement you see in philosophy. There's almost nothing that has the fundamental disagreement that you see in philosophy. Right. Um, secondly, just, you know, I'm going to get, you had a, you had three statements. Let me get to number two. Number two with regards to, uh, you don't have the same kind of um, overlap in these different disciplines as you will have between philosophy and theology, particularly in the New Testament. And I feel that, especially with regards to ethics. Um, yeah. I wouldn't, I'm, I'm not, I, I would speak improperly, at least in my view, if I were to say that there's such thing as a biblical metaphysics. Does the Bible really have much to say about the relationship between existence and essence or uh, the substance of the substance in an accident or, you know, the, your properties versus a, a substance? Is there a biblical metaphysic per se? Not precisely. Is there a biblical epistemology? Does the Bible concern itself with helping us understand how material beings are intelligible, how the, how the faculties and uh, workings of our cognition bring sensible realities to become conceptual realities? Not really. The Bible does not. I don't believe scripture is really concerned with epistemology per se. But ethics, that's where I do begin to ask whether there is even such thing as a coherent, distinguishable philosophical ethics um, relative to how God has revealed himself in scripture and the will he has for man. So it, it's a complicated. Well, well, it is, but, but even with your first two examples, well, while I take your point about metaphysics and epistemology, there are certain approaches to those topics that would be ruled out, I think, by the Absolutely. teaching of scripture. And, that, and, and, and so there are kind of guardrails that are established by scripture. Although I take your point, it's not teaching epistemology so per se. Here's a, and here's a fantastic example. I believe that the existence of the human soul is a biblical doctrine, that man is not a uh, purely material thing like the animals but has a soul that is distinguishable and will live on after our bodies perish. But will the, will scripture satisfy the debate between um, Aristotelians who believe our soul and our bodies are united into being one thing, although the soul and body are distinct as parts versus the dualist platonic or Cartesian dualist that we are a that we have, that we are two substances, not just distinct, but separate. Yeah, I'm not sure the Bible is going to satisfy that debate. While the doctrine of man, of course, has immediate philosophical um, implications for how we uh, do philosophical anthropology. And that brings, you know, to your third part about the competing philosophical schools. The way in which I teach it in Philosophy 301 is, uh, and it's, chron it's chronological, is that I do believe you can almost sum up the entire history of philosophy in these three schools. The first and uh, historically first as well is materialism and a materialist philosophy would reduce all things to some material element, some material principle. Whether, there is nothing but atoms and the void. Yeah, that'd be Dem Dem uh, Democritus would say that or Empedocles right. would say it is a all things are a composite of air, earth, air, fire, and water. Um, yeah, but it, the, the atomic theory is still very, or at least the particle theory is still with us today, is that if, if it is real, it is um, sensible, measurable, and that because material. So that, um, that philosophy had a very short uh, burst in the very uh, beginnings of Western thought and then went underground for 
um, 2000 years. Yeah. For about 2000 years until it was uh, the beginnings of uh, with Cartesian dualism, but then eventually an anatomism, especially gained ascendancy in the late 17th century. So, so the first question is as a, um, a Christian believer, can you be a materialist? Well, of course, I mean, of course not, because God is immaterial. We believe that there's such things as pure spirits, such as angels. And also we believe the immateriality and separability of the human soul. So you can see immediately, at least scripture begins to um, veto certain options. Yeah, close doors with regards to uh, how, and that's a very big door to close. Uh, Materialism represents many, many philosophers, especially contemporary philosophers. And so already we have uh, a door closed on us, a path that we can't walk down very far. Materialism will be and has been, especially for the last 500 years, the enemy of Christian philosophy. Um, oftentimes, even today, much of our much of this, uh, the skepticism and moral relativism that we oftentimes see around us as believers is reduced back to uh, a, a statement on reality where all things are reduced to matter. Because matter itself would have to be a perspective. It can so, only be, ever be a matter of perspective. So you said there are three three broad categories, three schools. What are the other two? So the way which I introduce it in class is that really the reason why he is a household name is because of the revolution he fomented, and that's Plato. Christians for almost all time have read Plato and wondered how he couldn't be a Christian. The famous, you know, quote, you're quoting Tertullian, a near a contemporary was Numenius who said, who is Plato but Moses speaking Attic Greek? Uh, and he, he was, I think he was commenting on the dialogue, the Timaeus. And why is, why, what did Plato do? Plato was interacting with the materialists who had then become skeptics and moral relativists of his day in fifth century Athens. And for him, he believed that we cannot explain our world. We can't explain the good. We can't explain the true if all reality is reduced down to atoms and empty space and motion. And he believed that there had to be principles, explanatory, causative principles that transcended matter. Now for him, um, well, we can give an example, right? Let's take a horse. For a materialist, you'd say, well, what it does, does horseness, the concept, the idea of a horse exist? And a materialist would say, yes, it exists in the human mind as a construct. It's a device by which we can gather together individuals under a single concept that uh, for the sake of, sake of practical reasoning. Plato believed that that was insufficient and uh, liable to skepticism as it was. And he believed that there has to be something in reality that is a horse, but it can't be identical with any individual horse and therefore must transcend all horses, making those horses to be horses. And so Plato's philosophy is one who is one that attests to the reality of principles outside our minds that make things to be. You can immediately see the appeal of that to the Christian mind. Oh, absolutely. For Plato, there had to be something beyond and above. And by above, I mean in terms of causality, beyond the particularities of our experience that explained our experience. And therefore, Plato, he didn't begin this tradition, but he really launched us 
into philosophy as an investigation in realities that we do not see. All right. So our clock is ticking and it's going to be insufferable if we have to cut it and not get to the third option. So you have, you have immateriality offered to you by Plato, materialism by Democritus uh, and Empedocles or whoever. So, so what's the third, what's the third option? Sure. And the third historically is uh, Aristotelianism. Aristotle was a student of Plato and he thought that, well, if these principles, these reasons why things are what they are, um, can never be seen and can only be accessed by our mind. Well, how can we ever get to them? How can we get to these absolute forms that are separate and transcendent above things? And it's the separateness, right? It's the fact it's that the hoarseness isn't in, actually in an in, individual horse. In Greek, it's chorismos, the, the separation between uh, hmm. the finite particular and the form in which it participates. And Aristotle brought the form back down to reality and believe that everything has within it a form, a principle that makes the thing to be what it is, but that foreign principle cannot be reduced to its matter. One way in which I talk about Plato and Aristotle in class is that Plato philosophized as a theist. He had an incredible understanding of transcendence with regards to um, these absolute principles that make reality to be what it is. But unfortunately he left our finite world valueless, unintelligible in itself, unmeaningful, unpurposative. There was no purpose here. And so in some ways, Plato was a relative theist. His theism is robust. Much of James's work on simplicity can draw itself back to Platonic philosophy. Hmm. But his doctrine of creation left this world as though it was created by an atheist. <laughs> Aristotle's almost the exact opposite. Aristotle treats this world as the great artifact filled with meaning, purpose, value, intelligibility. But he doesn't believe in any transcendent God. His God is a substance among substances, albeit a high one, but still one amongst us. And so the philosophy that I would commend is a, a medieval synthesis, not necessarily Thomas Aquinas's, although that's the most famous, but the medieval synthesis is a bringing together of the transcendence of Plato, the imminence of Aristotle. Both of them let our, our commitment to immaterial realities be yeah. held intact. And consciously with Plato and Aristotle pushing back against an atheistic materialism. We're kind of out of time, but I, we, we haven't, I know we haven't even really scratched the surface here. So, so let me just end with this question. So you've, you've laid out some of the uh, philosophical strands. You've, you've made a compelling case for why Christians need to study or ought to study philosophy. Um, where would you point someone who's just at the beginning, who hears this podcast, who's still listening to this podcast at this <laughs> point and, and says, I, all right, I'm in, uh, where, where do I start? I would start with your interests. That's what I encourage students in school. Start with your passions. You might be, um, an environmentalist or you might be, uh, politically concerned. Let's say you are into politics, right? Let's say you, um, you have a, a very strongly held political opinion, for instance. Start asking yourself this question. What's the purpose of human society? What ought we to be? Where, where ought we to be going? What, what is, is there such thing as human dignity and what, does, what is it? Where does it come from? How can we explain it? And from there, you'll begin reading political theory. 
if, if you're into politics, or you can begin to read, um, let's say you're uh, an environmentalist, you can read literature with regards to environmentalism. And the best literature will begin to reference its philosophical sources and begin to investigate those sources. I find that's one of, um, one of the most natural ways because you're beginning with firmly held truths. Now you might, those truths might be questioned. They might be negotiated, but to begin there, begin with uh, philosophy in connection to something that is already within your life. Uh, historically and, to, and just uh, textually, um, I'd begin with the uh, middle dialogues of Plato. Um, if you wanted to start reading some primary source work in philosophy, some of those middle dialogues are very, very accessible. Um, dialogues like the uh, Phaedrus or the Symposium, uh, maybe the first two or three books of the Republic. That's typically what I uh, recommend students. Uh, they, they start cutting their teeth uh, in the history, at least the Western canon. Bob, it's always a joy and it's always too short, but uh, yeah. I, thanks for th thanks for giving us at least a couple minutes of your time this afternoon. My pleasure. Have a good afternoon. You too, Bob. Thanks. James, this was a little longer, but it felt a little shorter. I mean, it's uh, it's it an engaging topic. It may not be a topic that interests everyone, uh, although I hope this was a little taster of why it it should at least be something that you consider. It can very quickly go off into a direction that makes people say, why do I need to think this? You know, way? and I, I understand that. I mean, it, our longer listeners will know that I, I have a penchant for this stuff and I, I enjoy it greatly. And I, I've probably discussed it more with Bob than any other person on this planet. Uh, so it was a joy to just have him on here for a few moments. Uh, but I, I think I was probably almost 30, had finished grad school uh, a couple times uh, by the time I was finally interested in philosophy. And it was um, it's because there's so much bad philosophy, uh, except for the philosophy that isn't. Uh, and it's just finding that uh, and laying hold of it and finding something true and compelling and also realizing that it's not a question of true philosophy or the Bible. Augustine once said that wherever the Christian may find truth, it is his Lord's. Uh, and I think with that confidence, we can contemplate our world uh, and even be willing to discover truths with the help of philosophers uh, in that world and lay hold of them uh, as, as God's truths. Uh, and I think that's something that, that Bob is encouraging, and he's so good at with his undergraduates. You've had a daughter go through class with him. Um, if I could pick a professor for my student, for my kids in college for philosophy, you know what I mean? Like, as a parent... The philosophy professor is usually the guy you've got to watch out for. Right. He's the guy who's going to wreck your kids. Um, you know, fair warning here from Theology on the Go. Bob is one who I think actually understands both the reality of, of philosophy. Philosophy isn't just bad theology. You know, sometimes you get that approach. Um, he believes in it as a, a science in its own right with an integrity and an approach of its own. And yet, uh, and in a way that is serviceable to the Christian um, and yet is not competing for the authority um, and the superiority of theology and of Holy Scripture. Uh, and I, I think that's an exciting, an exciting prospect, uh, that there's a, there's a world here waiting for our discovery and contemplation that, um, that should, insofar as it's true, uh, accord very well and non-combatively with our theological convictions. Well, 
It was a joy, as I said earlier, and uh, we're grateful to the listeners who hung in there with us. A little different kind of podcast. We don't have a, a book of Bob's to, to recommend or, or to give away, although if you go to the Theology on the Go link on placefortruth.org, you can enter for a chance to win The Consequences of Ideas by R.C. Sproul, a very helpful book and maybe a good answer to the question I asked at the end about a starting place if you're interested in philosophical matters. Uh, we're grateful for you as our listeners. Uh, please leave feedback if you if you have any. And if you're able to, to donate, you can do so at alliancenet.org or placefortruth.org. Both of those sites have a, a donate button. And as always, thank you for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief conversation about an eternal truth. Hi, this is Eric from Reformation Sites. Did you know that most people view a church's website before they'll ever set foot in the door? So how is your church's site? Would an online visitor searching for a church home find it inviting? Does it reflect your ministry as it should? Perhaps it's time to start a new website for your church that reaches out more effectively with a design that engages visitors while keeping members connected to the church and to one another. Reformation Sites has beautiful, mobile-ready designs to choose from, helpful service, and useful features such as sermon manager, online bulletins, courses, events, and notifications. It also integrates with other popular services like sermon audio, live streaming, and online giving, with pricing that fits into any church budget. In the month of October, we're celebrating Reformation Day by offering 25% off the website setup fee. Use coupon code REFDAY21 to redeem this offer when you go to ReformationSites.com to get started. Reformation Sites, church websites for a modern reformation.